Our culture is in a crisis, and the solution to that crisis is the gospel message. St. John's Seminary, the seminary of the Archdiocese of Los Angeles, offers an online MA in pastoral ministry degree for anyone interested in receiving formation for ministry. This program helps students improve their knowledge of the Catholic intellectual tradition and develop practical skills for ministry. A studio with professional video, audio, and lighting equipment allows our students to have an enjoyable technological experience, a necessity for any online learning environment. Anyone who is working in and around the Roman Catholic Church in North America needs an education like this. There's no way you could get this kind of education anywhere than at a seminary. Our online Master of Arts in Pastoral Ministry offers you the chance to continue your education in ministry and designed to provide you with the knowledge, spiritual formation, and practical skills that you need to serve the family of God in our parishes, schools, and other ministries. By grounding yourself in the intellectual tradition of the Catholic Church, you will be able to go out into this culture and leaven it with the good news. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Father, for this day, for the wonders of your creation, and the opportunities you give us to witness to your presence and your love in the world. I thank you for Dr. Stewart, for his desire to share your message, your good news to the world, and uh, the fruit that has come from this podcast. And I thank you for giving me this opportunity. Uh, we ask that your spirit guide us, enlighten us, remove from us distractions and anxieties, that we might be free to entrust ourselves more fully to your spirit, and that all those who are listening to this podcast might also listen with receptive hearts uh, and enable us to together be more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. We pray this through the intercession of St. Alphonsus the Glory, St. Teresa Benedicta of the Cross, our Holy Mother Mary, and all the saints. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Welcome to the podcast. My guest today is the voice you just heard, Father Jonathan Meyer, who is the Associate Director of the Propedeutic Program and Assistant Professor of Moral Theology here at St. John's Seminary. He is pursuing a doctorate in sacred theology from the Pontifical University of the Holy Cross, Santa Croce, and he is writing a dissertation on uh, Edith Stein, or St. Teresa Benedicta of the Cross, uh, and that dissertation is titled, The Role of Knowledge and Receptivity in Continuous Interior Conversion According to the Thought of Edith Stein. First of all, Father Jonathan, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Uh, do you go by Dr. Stewart? Stewart? And you can what? call me Stewart. That's right. fine. That's fine. <laughs> you're not my you're not my student. So, um, yeah, good. So let's. Uh, I wanted to have a conversation today about. Uh, well, what do you call her? Do you generally call her Edith Stein, or do you call her Saint Benedicta? Or, or yeah, great question. So in most of my uh, correspondence, I refer to her as Edith Stein. Though uh, this might be laziness on my part, it's mm -hmm. mostly because it's a much shorter title <laughs> yeah. than Saint Teresa Benedicta right. of the Cross. Right, right. right. But, uh, but in fact, I think it commonly, especially in the academic world, she's referred to as Edith Stein. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
So yeah, let's uh, jump into her um, uh, biography, her life, some of uh, her thoughts, her philosophy, uh, her model for us as a saint, um, and just to uh, get a sense of who she was and 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 who she is for us as a as a saint. So why don't we start with a uh, just a basic biographer her biography of her, and then we can come back and go a bit more uh, into detail on some of the highlights. So who was she and why was she important? Yeah. Um, so Edith Stein is the youngest of nine children, uh, born in 1891. Now, of the nine, only seven um, survived beyond childhood. Uh, so she is, to give you this context, was born in, at the time, was uh, Eastern Germany. It's now part of Western Poland. Uh, and grew up in a working-class family. Um, her father passed away from a heart attack or heat stroke uh, when she was just two years old. So um, we're talking about losing a very important figure in her life at a very young age. Her mom, who was an extremely strong woman, a dedicated woman, um, and uh, also Jewish woman, um, and immediately took over the family business. They were in the textile industry, and it was kind of the witness of her mom as this um, matriarch of the family that was very influential in Edith's upbringing. And of course, being surrounded by uh, family growing up was uh, heavily influential as well. So uh, what's interesting is, you know, we think of Edith Stein as a, an academic, a real intellectual, and she obviously had a brilliant mind. Um, but as a young student, she actually took a year off of school because she didn't like school. And uh, it was during that time her oldest sister had already been married and had kids. And so she spends a year from school to just kind of uh, grow grow up uh, in in terms of uh, taking care of her young niece uh, at the time and um, to uh, kind of just reflect a little more on her life. And it was simultaneously, uh, a few years later, no, I guess not simultaneously, a few years later, um, that she kind of stops praying. Uh, she kind of draws away from her Jewish faith. And her mom was a practicing Jew, but at least in my understanding that her mom was not forceful on imposing uh, those traditions upon her children. And so uh, she becomes a practical atheist in a way. Uh, she, she herself, you know, kind of just uses the term that she stopped praying. And many scholars will kind of intuit that it was during this time that she maybe never stopped questioning the existence of God, but uh, certainly that did not become a priority. And um, as I said, she was an extremely intelligent young woman and so uh, studied the, the classic languages, became quite proficient in Greek and Latin, and was also at the same time very fascinated by the human person. And when she went to college, uh, intended to study psychology, and it was through one of her early classes that uh, she became fascinated with this um, philosopher, uh, Dr. Edmund Husserl, who is the father of, uh, at the time, was a new philosophical school called phenomenology. In a nutshell, uh, and I'm not a philosopher, and uh, in fact, I, uh, full disclosure, I 
as I am learning about Stein's thought and obviously needing to explore a lot of her philosophical ideas because she is, strictly speaking, a philosopher, uh, I would also very much feel like I'm a, uh, only an amateur when it comes <laughs> to understanding that that world right. and those concepts. Um, but uh, you said that she uh, didn't really like school at first and took a year off. So we think about her as a convert from Judaism to Catholicism. But it sounds like she first had to go through an intellectual conversion from I don't like this school stuff to becoming a great intellect. Um, do we know anything about that sort of intellectual conversion to 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 the life of the mind? Well, I think a lot of it actually had to do less with her in intelligence and just more, again, with her like uh, social maturation. Uh, because she was so intelligent, seemingly it seemed that part of it she just got bored mm, in school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, and she, in her autobiography, um, which in the English title of that is "Life in a Jewish Family." She describes being kind of a judgmental person, um, and not, you know, toward her friends, toward some members in her in her family. And so, I think part of that time from school, I think when she was helping at, with her uh, with her sister and and her sister's family, uh, it was somewhat humbling for her to kind of take on responsibilities and be formed in kind of a different way. Um, and I, you know. I, Ultimately, we can argue that many experiences in our life looking backward, which at the time, you know, were full of uncertainty or maybe full of doubt on our par part, but then we can look back on it and see, oh, there, there was a message there or there was something that we gained from it. And I think Edith Stein's life is full of those moments uh, to the point where, you know, she really saw things in her later uh, life. Um, or mid-adult life, we might say, uh, really through the vision of God, like God's hand was in everything. What And she, one of her famous quotes is, what didn't lay in my plans lay in God's plans. What do we know about her specific Jewish context, like her family, the, the community she's a part of? So late 19th, early 20th century, we're talking pre-State of Israel, pre-Nazis, but certainly rampant anti-Semitism, uh, rising, um, the 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 uh, uh, Zionist movement is rising. Um, what do we know about the the Jewishness of her family and the specific community she was growing up in? That's a good question. I don't know if I can really comment too much on that context. I know that there was, I think, a lot of pride about being Jewish, um, and I think the environment that she grew up in was primarily surrounded by Jews, uh, not exclusively. I mean, she talks about in school encountering Christians, uh, and certainly when she began to study phenomenology, um, you know, fascinatingly, there was a lot of converts to Christianity in the in that early phenomenological movement. Um, some, many of them were Jews, um, and, uh, or if, if maybe they were Christian, they, uh, you know, I think of people like Max Shaler or Dietrich von Hildebrand, uh, who were, you know, big names in the Catholic world, who uh, were very influenced by phenomenology in terms of their own faith. And so um, it seems that, again, uh, her mother, who was a faithful Jew, um, but I don't get the necessarily the impression that many of her own family members were as devoted as she was. 
And I could actually, I'm, I mean, I'm not an expert on this, so I, I am definitely open to disagreement by other scholars um, who might know more about this particular dimension of her life than I do. But it does seem that uh, Jew, the Jewish life for her was more rooted in a cultural identity rather than a religious identity. Did she grow up in a big city or a sort of small town? Breslau, that's a good—so she grew up in a town called Breslau, um, and that's a good question. Um, I've never been there, right. and so I can't—and even, actually, what am I saying? Even if I visited it, that doesn't necessarily give yeah. what it what it looked like ago. 120 years ago, yeah. um, 30 years ago. So—but uh, it, it, it was a big enough town, certainly. I mean, it, she, her mom worked in industry, mm-hmm. and so we were, we're not talking rural necessarily— um, so later she does, con- she becomes a, a religious sister, a nun. Um, but before that she converts to Catholicism. So what do we know about, um, that, that discernment to, to, uh, respond to God's call to become Catholic? Yeah. You know, it's really a beautiful story because already again, um, when she was surrounded by the school of phenomenologists, uh, what became known as the, the Gottingen Circle. Um, which is the city that she studied in. Um, she obviously engaged in a lot of academic, philosophical discussions and debates, but I think underlying that was also this deeper question about, um, you know, who who is God? And phenomenology, which does not in, in and of itself necessarily... Um, <coughs> how do I say it? Phenomenology does not necessarily include the existence of God as its as its line of thought, uh, and yet because it is a a, a philosophical method, it's really a, a method that asks the person to just be open, to be receptive, uh, and more specifically to be aware of biases. And so I think as she deepened in this movement, in this method of phenomenology, um, the questions that maybe had she had been asking and wondering her whole life, had, uh, had she was more open to confronting those again. And there were a few concrete moments in her uh, young adult life. So we're, we're now thinking, she's now in her 20s when this is uh, happening. And um, one of her close friends, Adolf Reinach, who was a philosopher, uh, he dies in the First World War. And his wife, uh, who um, was a, they were, fr- this couple was a friend of Stein's. Uh, she, Stein goes to spend some time with her. And as a Christian, um, I can't think of his wife's name off the top of my head right now, but she demonstrates for Stein this, um, this hope, this perseverance in the midst of great grief and loss. Mm-hmm. And this touches Edith deeply. Um, you know, how, how can a woman, you know, continue to live with such confidence and hope? Um, and then subsequently, and maybe the best known story, is she spends a weekend with another group of friends. And at their house, she, you know, she loved to read. And so she picks up the life of St. Teresa of Avila, uh, her 
autobiography, St. Teresa's own autobiographical story. And she, she reads it in a weekend Mm -hmm. and it's not a, it's not a short book. No, no, no. Um, and at the end of that read, her famous line is, this is true. Mm-hmm. And so that was, that was, I think, the real turning point to her desiring to become Catholic. And I believe that takes place around the year 1920. Um, and then the following January, she gets baptized a Catholic. And uh, some of her friends were Lutheran, obviously, coming from Germany. And so there was some uh, debate over whether she was going to become uh, Lutheran or Catholic, um, but uh, she finally decides and sees in the Catholic Church uh, a richer tradition. And I think there was is, I recently I, I read a letter by one of her one of her friends, and she talks about how uh, for Protestants uh, heaven is an, is kind of a closed uh, place, but for Catholics it is open. You know, meaning like uh, it's I guess in the, at least in that time. Heaven was presented in Catholic churches as uh, this hopeful place to go. Rather, in Protestant, there may have been more of like a fire and brimstone mm, sure. uh, perspective on eschatology. So, yeah, in a nutshell, um, she went, and when she becomes Catholic, she goes all in. It really becomes, it begins to define her life. And maybe perhaps because of reading that Life of St. Teresa, very early on, she has this desire to become a Carmelite. I think... Nowadays, you know, people convert to really different religions all the time. People convert to Catholicism, and it's, uh, you know, generally not a big deal. Um, people shrug their shoulders. I, I came into communion, full communion with the church in 2011, and pretty much no response. People, frankly, didn't care. But that's certainly not the case throughout most of history. You can think of somebody like uh, uh, John Henry Newman, who lost his job at Oxford. You know, there are real consequences to converting to Catholicism. Uh, what, how did her family, how did her circles respond to this conversion? Did she have any sort of really significant consequences to becoming Catholic? Well, primarily that would be with the family. Um, her mother did not understand it. And while her mom continued to, to have, a, I think, a relatively good relationship with Edith, uh, there was certainly a tension that becoming Catholic brought to the family because many saw it as a rejection of her, again, of the Jewish heritage. and But uh, to Edith's credit, she was always, she continued to be very proud of her Jewishness mm. and the culture that she was, uh, she, she was raised in and always identified as Jewish, even though simultaneously she understood that as a baptized Catholic, um, that she she saw kind of a continuation as you know as us as Catholics who recognize in all of us a um, that we're descendants of Jews, mm-hmm. uh, but that the covenant the new covenant of Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of of what was given to us mm-hmm. in Abraham and and the fathers of our faith. Which again, that's another one of those things I think that it sounds easy to say in the twenty first century of oh yes I'm a convert but I'm continuing with my Jewishness, but. In her time, that certainly would not be, even though that's sort of technically theologically correct, right? You know, think of in the early church, the Marcion uh, heresy that sort of wanted to reject that Jewish past and reject what we call the Old Testament. Um, And of course, Catholicism stood against that and said, no, 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 Jesus is the fulfillment of those promises. So theologically, it's certainly a correct thing for her to say, but 
I'm I'm guessing that in the the time that she lived and the place that she lived, trying to hold that in her mind and articulate that to other people was probably not a, an easy thing to do. To say no, 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 I I the, the, this Catholicism is uh, an expansion of a fulfillment of uh, a, an extension of my Jewish past. Do we know either with her specifically or other people who? at that time who sort of tried to make that claim. Um, you know, you can't, you can't really say that in a 90 second uh, uh, sales pitch or an elevator pitch and, and have that make sense to Catholics or even Jews. So do we know much about how she kind of tried to hold to that and, and explore what does it mean to be Jewish and Catholic in that way in light of the, the, the world that she lived in? It is, yeah, it's important to point out that obviously as her Catholic faith became more important to her to the point where she was discerning religious life, that historically this was happening at a time when anti-Semitism was was a growing sentiment. And um, arguably from 1928 to 1933 is when she became a, a more of a public figure in Germany uh, as a Catholic intellectual woman, and um, throughout those years was, um, I think, also becoming more courageous in um, in condemning anti-Semitism and uh, being a voice for her Jewish people. Um, now, what probably could be asked is to the degree to which you know, that that influence reached out to the Jews themselves. I mean, obviously, she still had f friends that she kept in touch with. And, and interestingly, in her own family, uh, again, you know, I, um, I haven't studied this in great depth, so I don't know more specifics about mm -hmm. how the, like her siblings, for example, reacted to her. It, it seems like there was sort of a passive support of her becoming Catholic. One of her... Uh, one of the sisters that she's closer to in age, Rosa, who ends up dying with her, uh, she also ends up getting baptized Catholic, mm -hmm. but that doesn't happen until after her mom passes away in 1936. Okay. So she certainly was a good witness to Catholicism, even to her own family, um, if for no other reason, because her sister kind of sees uh, in her. And I think this sister, Rosa, even though she was older, um, saw in Edith... Uh, just uh, someone, uh, a figure that she admired because of, um, you know, her, her maybe healthiness as a woman, and um, you know, to not necessarily put a specifically religious nuance to this, that Edith was seen as a as a pretty balanced person, and not easy, especially in the academic world, to interpret that. I mean, you sort of, and she was a pretty private person. Mm -hmm. So only those that really knew her kind of recognized in her her more sensitive uh, capacity to be present to people. Um, because in, uh, from, you know, if you're just basing it on what you read from her or um, on just her status as the one, you know, one of the first women to get a doctorate in Germany, mm. you would just think of someone that is just in her head all the time. Sure. But she was an extremely integrated woman. And, uh, and you know, some of her, her talks and writings kind of uh, detail that. But um, so I think that was part of, you know, the importance of her family to see her commitment to them 
um, and that this new, this turn toward Christ as a Catholic was not really a rejection. And I think she, she probably doubled her efforts mm. um, to, make th- to make that expressed and manifest that she's still a Jew, even yeah. if she has sort of left the, explicitly the faith of, mm. of the Jews. So she converts to Catholicism, uh, but that's not sort of the end of her story, that she then wants to and becomes a, a uh, consecrated religious woman. What do we know about that, that discernment? So as I mentioned, uh, she wanted to become a Carmelite pretty early on, but her spiritual director uh, tells her she shouldn't. And... Um, there's that she shouldn't at all, or she shouldn't at that she should time. Wait. She, yeah, exactly, okay. that she should wait. Now, of course, at, for those who convert, it is very common right. for there to be a period of, of several years before, mm. you, you know, discerning religious life yeah. and entering, the se- or entering seminaries, etc. I was actually uh, rereading the, um, the Rule of St. Benedict this past weekend, and he was talking about admitting priests into the monasteries, and he said, I think the line was, uh, if a priest shows up and wants to become a, a Benedictine monk, don't accept them too quickly. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's certainly some. And I think that's actually in, in a lot of ascetic traditions. If you look at Buddhist ascetics or, or, or Hindus, that this idea of you don't want to take these people too quickly because this is a serious commitment. And so you got to make make them prove that they this is what they really want. Yeah, and I could certainly see uh, how Edith would have this great zeal and lease on life new lease on life in her catholicism uh being filled with the spirit and uh it was so this was in 1921 and and this is kind of what led her to become more interested in the catholic intellectual tradition and studying saint thomas aquinas and saint augustine and saint john henry newman um so uh she really dives deep into the faith and i think and this is kind of a conjecture, though I've, I've seen a few people posit it, that one of the reasons why she was told not to enter so quickly was precisely because of her intellectual gift. Mm. And and to put that into context, you know, in, so 1920s, um, one of the things I didn't mention is, you know, just kind of what was the status of women at this time. Yeah. And we're talking about the suffrage movement. Uh, she had difficulties in her own institutions because she wanted to be a college professor. Yeah. And even though um, the professors that she was working with, even Edmund Husserl himself, admired her and saw her great gift, there was still kind of a resistance to yeah. say that the classroom, the college classroom, was a place for women. Right. And so she, uh, she never really talks much about that the effect of that rejection on her... Um, but her spiritual director, I think, still saw a a space for her to share that intellectual gift, presuming that if she went to religious life, that she would be kind of shut out from that. Yeah, which was which ended up not being the case so much. But um, so she dives into her the Catholic intellectual tradition, and probably what gave her the most notoriety is she translates. Um, some works of St. Thomas Aquinas, his uh, uh, disputed questions on truth into German, which had never been done before, apparently. Mm-hmm. And uh, even though there, you know, there's comments and critics on uh, critiques on that translation, 
this gives her a name in the German Catholic world. Mm -hmm. And so providentially, she ends up spending several years in kind of a speaking circuit. And uh, interestingly enough, her passions were um, very heavily directed towards women. So uh, the vocation of women, uh, the how to uh, she was a t- so she did end up getting a teaching job in a in a, a girls' school and for several years, and um, so she was also becoming very exposed to not just education as this. Uh, communication of information, but of formation of the whole person. And so it was during this time that she was developing uh, her ideas of anthropology and who the, Herman, who the, who the human person is mm-hmm. in God's design. And so that kind of influences and orients a lot of what she would speak on. Uh, and again, in the in the Catholic world at this time, there were a lot of changes, um, a lot of questions about education and pedagogy. So she becomes kind of a, a pioneer in the Catholic German world on what this should look like, and um, and perhaps is arguably some of the greatest gift of her intellectual prowess uh, to to us today. We certainly don't have time to go into the depths of her thought. Uh, you know, her pre-Christian sort of phenomenological writings, and then uh, uh, once she becomes a a Catholic. But maybe we can talk just for a minute or so about that. Um, You talk about uh, her understanding, her her anthropology, her understanding of the human person. Um, She had some things to say about uh, the integration of the intellect with the will and the emotions, uh, promoted the interior life, uniqueness of the individual. So what... um, what can we say about her thought in 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 sort of Catholic philosophy or Catholic theology? What sort of contributions has she made? A lot could be said on that question. Um, on the one hand, she, like all of the great theologians of our past, was extrapolating and synthesizing what had been said prior to her. So, uh, having studied the Church Fathers and St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas is giving, is I should say, representing these thoughts, but through the, the lens that she knew this, this in the School of Phenomenology. Yeah. And I think what makes that new and maybe more accessible to a, a modern audience is uh, it's, it, where, it, where it starts from. So, and, uh, you know, when we think of, like, the, the medieval scholastics, um, there is, uh, you, be, you know, the, the starting point is often, like, who, you know, who is God? Mm-hmm. And then from God, we can understand the creation and we can understand the human person. Uh, in Stein's perspective, she begins with the human person. Mm. What, what do we know from our experience? What do we know from... Uh, from our experience of of division, of u- of unity, of love, of war, of anxiety, uh, and so being very much in tune with the human experience, she uh, takes these um, traditional thoughts, and in some places she even offers some, I think, pretty sound critiques, um, but more importantly. She's affirming what has been said, but also trying to say, trying to represent the t- 
tenets of our faith uh, in a, a way that perhaps is just more relatable to our modern thought with, you know, the advent of psychology, of, um, of sociology, and kind of some of these newer sciences of today. And while, of course, the danger of any of this when we talk, when we start from the human person, is that we sort of uh, separate the human person from God, or we kind of, uh, and this is, I think, the temptation even in phenomenology, and, and she talks about this, is to kind of make the the individual the the sub the conscious the individual conscious sort of the center of the world mm. is she articulates it in such a way where well this this individual conscious even though it's unique and even though it has its own dignity and worth that is you know unconditional and irreplaceable uh, at the same time is sustained by something greater is is it exists because it has been received. I mean, she calls the human being a received being, mm -hmm. meaning simply that we don't exist on our own. We aren't uh, separate from the context from which we are born in, from where we grew up in, and above all, from the very context that we are created in God's image and likeness. So I think uh, we see that same line of thought happening decades later in, for example, uh, St. John Paul II. Uh, and in um, a lot of the writings of the, the Council Fathers around the Second Vatican Council as well. Um, and so she's presenting this, uh, maybe not for the first time, because we can argue, you know, Dietrich von Hildebrand and Max Scheler were also kind of offering similar thoughts. And uh, it would be, it, some scholars have kind of put all these characters in conversation with each other to, mm -hmm. you know, hone out the details and the differences and the similarities but I think arguably um, what she brings to the church is her, uh, I think um, she brings to the church a tangible way to understand uh, in our modern sensibilities how we relate to God and relate to each other, uh, and especially not just from a, um, a level of the senses, but... Uh, more importantly, from an interior level, that the interior of the person is this living being um, connected and lived through our bodies, but also experiences this whole spiritual world that, um, I mean, is uh, would, would take certain time to explain, but, uh, you know, involves our relationship with God, our relationship with ourself, our relationship with uh, the rest of creation. You know, we don't just see and experience things tangibly through the senses, but also have this, there's this invisible component, the spiritual component that, uh, that we have are in our, in relationship with as well. So she becomes a Carmelite nun, uh, and then eventually, uh, of course, known, murdered by the Nazis in Auschwitz. And she, she, like a lot of, uh, uh, uh and, and was murdered because even though she was a Catholic, uh, because of her Jewish background, and this was, you know, she could see the writing on the wall. She wasn't, she wasn't um, naive. So when she, she knew that her death was coming, how did she sort of embrace the the cross of martyrdom? Yeah, it's a great question, and I, I love that question actually because um, when I, in my studying of Edith Stein, what I think is important to highlight is she is a woman who is an unfinished product, and from those 
earlier days of, of her practical atheism to now entering the Carmelite order and giving herself totally to the Lord as a spouse, um, you see uh, in her writings this maturation and the shift that focuses less on what the human person can do and more on what God can do through the human person. And certainly the circumstances and the stress of the 1930s contributes to this. Um, you know, she has constant worry for her people, for her family in particular. Some of her family leaves the country and they, they were able to escape. Uh, other family members did not have that um, opportunity. And so, um, but I think in this time, we just see a a growing surrender to God and trusting in his providence. And so, um, you know, when we are faced with suffering, it often leads either to a greater kind of control of our life. And I think the fruits of that are often just greater anxiety or depression, or sometimes at worst, even despair or surrender of our life that uh, allows us to see hope uh, and a hope, not just in whatever God has planned for us now, but ultimately the hope that lies for our eternal destination in heaven. And many scholars will say in the last five or six years of her life, she she was becoming more of a mystic. And, you know, that fits into the Carmelite tradition. Sure. Teresa of Avila, John of the Cross, Elizabeth of the Trinity are uh, some of the names who, who demonstrate for us like this mystical union this it's it's hard to put into words this intangible experience of intimacy with god that uh edith stein was trying to articulate and um while initially when she entered she was ready to give up her entire writing and academic career she ends up being asked to continue it Mm -hmm. as a carmelite and so um you know her uh, famous work the science of the cross uh, comes out of this time of um, kind of letting go of the hope of the world and our our dependence on the world in order to dive deeper into this intangible, mysterious, what she calls dark knowledge of faith. Um, and um, I think she had a lot of confidence and consolation in even if that consolation was in the form of suffering, I mean, the even the title of this work, The Science of the Cross, alludes to this understanding that the way we achieve our salvation is through the cross. That's obviously the example that Jesus gives us. Mm-hmm. And so suffering doesn't just become something to avoid or to be afraid of, but something to embrace as an expression and an expression of love and as well as a solidarity with our Lord and Savior. And it um, shapes how she lived in those final years of her life in a total, total utter dependence on whatever God had in store for her. And it's, it seems to be clear that she kind of knew what was coming. And, um, you know, she, but she didn't just accept it passively. Um, she, even before she went to the convent, you know, she writes to the Pope saying that he needs to speak more, uh, explicitly about this persecution of the Jews. And, um, she gets moved from her original convent in Cologne, Germany to Holland, uh, 
and obviously Holland wasn't uh, spared by the Nazis either. Um, but at that point, she's looking for ways to go to America, to Switzerland. I mean, there were things that she tried. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not like she was just passively accepting mm-hmm. martyrdom. But uh, in despite of those efforts, it was she knew she was in the hands of God and felt very consoled and confident in those hands. She was canonized as a saint. I, I believe it was during John Paul II. Uh, and, and there are certainly many different ways of, of being a saint. Um, talk about her as a saint, as a model for us, uh, her passions for theater, literature, the classics. Um, you know, we, the, you can think of, you mentioned Thomas Aquinas, right? So the great intellect, or you can think of a, um, uh, uh, a con- younger contemporary, or an older contemporary, somebody like the Little Flower, right? She was not a great intellect, and yet she's a doctor of the church, too. Mm-hmm. So when you think about her as a saint, her, as a model for us, w- what comes to mind? The first thing that comes to mind is she was a very in- integrated person. And so, uh, yes, I think the intellectual gifts that she brought are maybe the most obvious to a lot of people, but uh, she had a tremendous creativity. And she was known even in her days at school to come up with plays. She would do plays uh, in her family. There's a couple of plays that we have um, that she wrote and have been published. Um, And uh, in the convent, you know, for the novices, for example, uh, she would often take charge of, you know, entertaining the, the other sisters and coming up with these creative dialogues. She came up with this uh, kind of dialogue between, St. Thomas Aquinas and Edmund Husserl. So they, they, some of them were probably a little more intellectu- on the intellectual right, side. Right. But other ones, you know, she does this too with like uh, visions of St. Augustine and, and other saints. Uh, and so um, uh, she was not afraid of those other dimensions of life. And I think very much complemented uh, and shows us how... Um, the intellectual world is not meant to be a separation or a, a fleeing from the humanities, from the arts. Um, and as I said earlier, uh, she models for us, you know, just the the reality of ongoing conversion, mm-hmm. um, that she knows that she is an unfinished product. She took cr- criticisms very well. Um, and, uh, as, you know, this sounds kind of funny, but when she was a, when she was a novice, um, she wasn't exactly the best at household chores, which of <laughs> course the nuns had to do. Right. And I mean, there's various reasons for that. Um, so she, she was humbled. I mean, she enters the convent when she's, uh, 42 and, you know, needs to ask for help from these, uh, early young adults, uh, these young adult women, because she didn't know how, whatever, she wasn't good at mopping the floors or, um, you know, dusting the shelves or the windows or whatever. And so, uh, she also demonstrates for us how to that, like that childlike ability to not maybe take ourselves so seriously, but to believe that in those moments of humility and those moments of suffering, uh, there's always more that we can learn and receive from our God who loves us. As I mentioned earlier, you're writing a doctoral dissertation on her, and um, so you're spending years on that, and and possibly spending your entire academic career exploring her life and her thoughts. 
thought. Um, what what draws you to her, to her life, and to her work? Why why dedicate um, this time to exploring her? Yeah. So I, you know, I I've only really been studying her for f- four years now, and when I was at the seminary, I uh, wrote my thesis on John Paul II's theology of the body. So this theme of um, Trinitarian anthropology of the integral formation of the person is something that I'm very passionate about, something that I've, I've tried to explore. And when I went to uh, Rome and was asked to um, study, I, wasn't, I was open to looking at someone other than John Paul II. And I think providentially, I came to Edith Stein through just an article that was written in our uh, diocesan newspaper, The Angelus. Mm-hmm. And obviously, it was not academic. It didn't provide uh, any, anything that would say, oh, this is who, this is, this is going to be it. But it was, it was a bit biographical, and it also talked a little bit about her um, understanding of women. And uh, it piqued my interest enough to at least start looking at her. Mm. And so... I read her autobiography and the uh, second book in the English translation of her published works is are her essays on women. And it was really that work that captured my attention and um, that I think would, that made her a good fit for my own study. And so um, like John Paul II, I think she just has a, a very, um, complementary approach to the human person um, where we're not trying to defeat one another or trying to be at odds with one another, but trying to discern our gifts mm-hmm. and acknowledge and help the gifts of the others, uh, which really gets to the point of, of what love is um, and the idea that together we can, um, if, we're, if we're using our gifts, and this is, you know, this is what I think it was Catherine of Siena that said, where your gifts and the needs of the world intersect, therein lies your vocation. Mm. And uh, I think very much in our church today, we, um, we, we like to you know, play more the, the game of, of war when th- I think Christ calls us to, uh, to shift that vision. And it, it, it's hard work because it does require a deep look at what causes those conflicts within us and the things that we're afraid of and the things that we are ashamed of and the, the sins of our past, et cetera. Um, but, boy, I, I can tell you how it has transformed my own life personally and has made me more excited to preach the gospel mm. because I think what Jesus gives us, um, and th- especially through his witness as a human being, uh, and then, of course, as God, and also what our Blessed Mother Mary witnesses to us, is this integral pathway of, of self-gift. And um, Edith Stein is, um, on, a, on a technical level, as a phenomenologist, she follows the uh, personalist school of phenomenology. And, I mean, that kind of gets to the, the thrust of what personalism is about. You mentioned just a moment ago her writings about, um, about women uh, and we talked earlier about her struggles uh, about not being able to become a professor be- because even though she was brilliant, she was a woman in the early 20th century. And, of course, we're in this current cultural moment where one of the big conversations in our public discourse is about the body, um, uh, gender, uh, 
um, what what does Edith Stein have to offer us, if anything at all, about that to to inform that conversation? I mean, I'm guessing she didn't write anything explicitly about transgender people because that probably wasn't really on her mind. But when she writes about women and men uh, and her anthropology, does she have anything that can sort of contribute to this discussion that we are having in, in 2023? So I would say Edith definitely addresses the relationship between uh, masculinity and femininity as connected to uh, our bodies. And again, as I was saying earlier, uh, we have the spiritual side to us, and uh, her mature thought would um, posit that our spirits and our uh, our bodies, and this, you know, this is kind of traditional uh, Christian belief that we are both matter and spirit, we're body and soul. And on the one hand, uh, I think in a lot of modern sensibilities, this is seen as like a trap. This is seen as a, a prison to tie our spirit and our bodies together. And so the temptation is to reject this material side that uh, as long as, or maybe the better way of putting it, we are primarily spirit. And so, and, you know, even we believe that at death there is a separation of spirit and body, uh, even though that at the end we believe there would be a reunification and a glorification of our bodies, uh, not knowing exactly what that's going to look like. But I think the primary thing that Stein is trying to address, because she's obviously aware even at this time, and in some ways I haven't read a lot of other authors who address this during that time period, but I think Edith is arguably bold and even a pioneer in addressing this concern, but she's trying rather than to go the path of rejecting the body is offer this image of redeeming the body, mm-hmm. that uh, the sick the sickness that causes us to separate body and spirit um, is not because our bodies are bad or because they, they have no purpose. Um, it, part of it is, is the humility of understanding that as human beings we have limitations. And she knows that uh, each of us are given strengths and weaknesses that some of that is is culturally conditioned, but some of that goes beyond that. Um, that some of it is just kind of part of the fabric of how God made us. You know, God didn't make us to be independent, autonomous beings, but mm-hmm. rather beings in community. And that's yeah. actually one of her. That's really one of her big, uh, big, big thoughts. So, uh, as we um, are facing today, you know, this this continual war between body and spirit. I think one of the things that Stein can help us with, and I would at reference specifically her essays on women, mm-hmm. is um, this relationship between the and and the difference between the relationship between the man's spirit and the man's body, and a woman's spirit and the woman's body. That uh, how we see our bodies are different, and I know this obviously is a generalization. Um, and part of that generalization is still played out. I mean, the, in, uh, you know, as we're even in the transgender world, as we're saying, oh, well, you feel like you're a woman. Well, why do you feel like you're a woman when you have a, a quote unquote male body? Mm-hmm. Um, 
and uh, it's still giving into the the same stereotypes of femininity. And so I think even though Stein, I think sometimes today would be criticized for some of her overgeneralization of masculinity and femininity, mm-hmm. um, it's rooted in the the makeup of the body, and that phys- so our our physiology. Um, rather than being something that we need to control, is a language that can speak and inform on who we are. And, and this is, you know, I think, part of the brilliance of, of the Christian message and what Christ is trying to tell us in the gospel. Um, you know, and, uh, and this kind of gets into John Paul II's thought, um, that from the beginning, this is, not what, uh, this is not what it was so. And so similarly, like, John Paul II reflects a lot on how um, the relationship of Adam and Eve became distorted uh, after sin. Um, Stein does the same; that she really has a beautiful reflection on from the on how our historical situation has set us up to be at war between the spirit and the body, mm. but that the answer is never going to be to destroy or to separate, but to redeem and reconcile mm. that tension. Final question. Um, there are, I think, uh, 37 doctors of the church. Um, I had mentioned um, Tom Aquinas and the little flower. Uh, each doctor has a title. Augustine, for example, is the doctor of grace. Uh, if Edestein were ever to be declared a doctor of the church, what do you think her title would be? Doctor of fill-in-the-blank? That's a great question. There's actually a, a movement, an active movement, to uh, make her doctor oh, of the church. Right? Oh. Yeah, and uh, it just... It just reached its first phase. I'm not even sure what the, all the phases are, but uh, I was informed recently that they made it through that first phase. Okay. I don't know anything about that process. Uh, frankly, I don't even know that much about the canonization process, but, um, yeah, I don't know anything about the process. I mean, St. Irenaeus was made a doctor of the church like two years ago or something, so it wasn't that long ago. and I didn't, Yeah, I didn't know there was much of a process. I thought it was just like the Pope says, here we go, we're going to do this now. Yeah. I I mean, I'm sure it's very interesting, and they're trying to keep those who are connected to kind of her academic circle, because they want feedback, they want uh, input Mm -hmm. on, you know, why she should or should not be declared a doctor of the church. Right. In terms of uh, a name, what would we call St. Teresa Benedicta of the Cross? The first word that comes to mind is perhaps doctor of compassion. Mm. Um. And what I mean by that is, you know, the more the root word of that, like the passion, even meaning like suffering. Yeah. Um, and so suffering with uh, her Jewish people, mm. suffering um, as a, a witness to the faith, as uh, to the Catholic faith. Um, but I think it also manifests itself in her writings um, that uh, going back to this idea that she's a very integral person. Um, so she understood human suffering, and while she was, I think, certainly a force, you know, she wouldn't let somebody settle in life. She was also very attentive. She, her own dissertation was on the subject of empathy. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, she also was very discerning on how to speak to people and in such a way that they could receive the message she was trying to communicate. Um, so that's one potential. I mean, you, you could call it maybe the doctor of the cross, uh, because that's, at least as a Carmelite and martyr, I think that's often what she is associated with. 
and there's not many doctors of the church who are martyrs. Yeah, that's true. I don't know all 37 of them off the top of my head, but most of them are, well, again, I mean, somebody like the Little Flower was not a university professor like Thomas Aquinas was, but most of them were were giant brains. St. Teresa Benedicta of the Cross, Doctor of Compassion, pray for us. Father Jonathan, thank you so much for joining me today. I really enjoyed this conversation. Me too. Thanks for having me, and God bless all of you who are listening in your work and in your continual journey with Christ. Thank you, Father. Our culture is in a crisis, and the solution to that crisis is the gospel message. St. John's Seminary, the seminary of the Archdiocese of Los Angeles, offers an online MA in pastoral ministry degree for anyone interested in receiving formation for ministry. This program helps students improve their knowledge of the Catholic intellectual tradition and develop practical skills for ministry. A studio with professional video, audio, and lighting equipment allows our students to have an enjoyable technological experience, a necessity for any online learning environment. Anyone who is working in and around the Roman Catholic Church in North America needs an education like this. There's no way you could get this kind of education anywhere than at a seminary. Our online Master of Arts in Pastoral Ministry offers you the chance to continue your education in ministry and designed to provide you with the knowledge, spiritual formation, and practical skills that you need to serve the family of God in our parishes, schools, and other ministries. By grounding yourself in the intellectual tradition of the Catholic Church, you will be able to go out into this culture and leaven it with the good news.